If you did not bring a Bible, let's get a Bible into your hand. Those of you that have your Bibles, Matthew 27 is the first place to mark. The second place is 1 Peter chapter 2. Matthew 27, 1 Peter 2. If you don't have a Bible, put your hand up and the guys in the back will bring a Bible to you. And then you can join us again, Matthew 27, 1 Peter chapter 2. I can promise you we'll make it to Matthew 27. That's our main passage. Sometimes we don't always make it to the other passages, but we'll see. We'll see what the morning holds. Good? Yes. Okay, let's pray. Let's pray. Father, uh, boy, we uh, are just astounded, and I pray that we would be even more astounded as we remember you and the events that occurred 2,000 years ago and their significance for today in our lives. Lord, you are still the greatest hero that ever lived. You are the most courageous. You are the most disciplined. You are the most loving. And you are the most holy and the most royal, and the most awesome and magnificent. And Lord, as we get into your word and we read and we think and we meditate on the things that you went through, the things that you willingly and silently endured without a complaint so that you might bring us to the Father, we are in awe. And we are humbled. Because while we were yet sinners, you died for us. And Lord, I pray that this group in here would not take for granted so great a salvation. That we would see and and feel and understand everything that went into securing our eternity for us. Lord, what can we say, but here we are. Use us. We just present you in in all of our failures and all of our weaknesses and all of our humanness and all of our messed up thinking. And we just thank you for the parts you've straightened out. And we thank you for the parts that still have yet to be straightened out. And again, Lord, here we are. Open our eyes so that we might see wondrous things from your word. And all God's people said in agreement, amen, amen. I don't know about you, but this study in Matthew has, each week has been impacting me more and more. Um, There are some people, as we've been, let me say this, we've been going through Matthew for near two years now. Has it been about two years, I think, we've been in the, the gospel of Matthew, the biography of the king, and as we see Jesus in this chapter 27, uh, it, he hardly looks like a king, but he is. And this is the discussion he's going to have with Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. It's been building, matter of fact, if you've ever watched the Olympics, maybe you did this year, and you see some of these athletes that everything in their life, even from the time they were young, I remember seeing the story of one of the girls who was a gymnast and her mom, they interviewed her and talked about it. Even from when she was like five years old, she was in gymnastics and she just knew she wanted to be an Olympian. And so her whole life was sort of pointing 
in that direction. The family's life, everybody, everything was feeding that goal. And there she is at the Olympics, you know, feeling this is the, this is the moment of time that I have been living for. Do you know what I'm saying? Do you understand that? This is everything in my life has pointed to this moment. And, and as we read and as we've been reading the last two years in the gospel according to Matthew, we realize that what we are reading today and next week is, is the culmination of everything that Jesus' life has been pointing to. He has been living for this moment in time and this day when he would bear in his body the sins of the world. And we'll talk more about that as we go through Matthew 27. It seems like everything in, is coming unglued in this 24-hour period. I mean, things, crazy things are happening. All this, in, in less than a 24-hour period, he goes from having this, you know, pass, celebrating the Passover dinner with his disciples to them all fleeing, them all leaving him. One of them betrays him. He's, he finds himself in a, in a late night, mid-morning trial that's, that's, he's lied about, he's abused, he's spit on, but yet still smelling like the fragrant spikenard from Mary as she had broken and poured it out on his head. And today it goes, as we read, it goes from, from weird to weirder. Uh, Peter denies him publicly and with cursing three times. Judas then tries to give back the money because he feels guilty over what he did. He has remorse, but not repentance. There's a difference we talked about last week. He feels bad about what happened, but doesn't feel bad about his greed. And so he ends up hanging himself and ends any possibility that God could have done anything with him in the future had he asked for forgiveness. No great story of Judas becoming a trophy of God's grace. Satan won that battle. And Satan still tries to win battles by convincing people that somehow life will be better if you just ended it. That somehow that's the end of things. But, you know, look, uh, for, for many, many people that, that commit suicide, um, they end up passing from bad to worse because they pass into eternity in hell. And that's the lie of Satan. That's what Satan wants you to believe because he is a stealer, he is a killer, and he is a destroyer. And so this is, that's where we ended, and we didn't get much farther than that. So we'll pick up in chapter 27 with uh, verse 5 ended and about with Judas hanging himself. Verse 6 says, But the chief priest took the silver pieces. These are the silver pieces they had paid Judas for his betrayal of Jesus. So he had tossed them back in the temple, like, you know, just going to give these things back. And here the chief priest took the silver pieces and they said, it's not lawful to put them in the treasury because they are the price of blood. Aren't they men of conscience? I mean, come on. And isn't it so funny? You know, we, we laugh because, you know, we see the humor in it because on one hand, you know, they've been plotting murder against Jesus for a while now. And they've just, they've sought false witnesses. They've sought people to lie about him so they could kill him. But now all of a sudden they develop a conscience when it comes to the money in the treasury. Well, we can't. This is, you know, this is money we paid for assassination. You know, we can't put this in the treasury. And isn't, is, in our lives, we can find ourselves being so sort of legalistic, maybe, or so successful in one area. Oh, we, I would never do that. You know, I would not do that. But we can have such failures in other areas. Isn't that ironic about our lives? You know, we can be so successful in one area of spirituality, but then fail so miserably in others. And it's just, that's why being legalistic is, is, 
is so, so painful personally and in the church because we, we know the reality is, is that I might be really victorious in, this, in following this one rule, but I know I'm breaking a whole bunch of other ones at the same time. So, so we, we sort of see these guys as, you know, it's not lawful. Are you kidding me that we put that into the treasury because they're the price of blood? Yeah, they couldn't put that and, and use it for, this, for any holy purposes. So they consulted together and bought with them, bought with this 30 pieces of silver, the potter's field to bury strangers in. So they, they decide, well, what can we use? You know, Judas has given us this money back. We can't put it in the treasury, uh, so we're going to have to do something with it. So we buy a potter's field. Now, the potter's field would be a place, the soil would have been heavily clay. And this would have been where potters would have gone to get their clay to make their earthen vessels, to make their wares. And so it's not, not really good for planting stuff in and growing things. And so they, they were able to get it pretty cheap. And this was going to be the place where they would bury people that were visiting and, and died there. They would, even to this day, uh, New York City has a cemetery that they would refer to as a potter's field. It's where you would bury indigent homeless, people that had no family, people that had no real social identity would be buried in a place, a common burial place, what they still call to this day the term a potter's field. So they buy this thing called the the potter's field, which literally was the field where the potters would get their clay, and that's the place where strangers would be buried. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day because it was purchased with blood money, money used to betray Jesus. Uh, nobody really knows where that is, though, to this day. I'm not really sure uh, where that exists there in Jerusalem. Verse 9, this is very interesting. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced, and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Now, some of your Bibles, you may see those things in italics, and that means it's being quoted. And so for Matthew, all through this, because it's hard to figure out who's in control through this, you know, well, Pilate doesn't seem to be in control, Pontius Pilate. Uh, The Jews seem to be in control, but ultimately what Matthew continues to tell us is that God is in control, and that all the events are happening, that are happening, are happening according to his providence, meaning that he is working out his will in every one of these circumstances and situations, just as it had been planned from the beginning of of the universe, beginning of time. Now, the interesting thing about this is, who does Matthew say uh, is being, uh, spoke this thing? Who does he say right there? He says, Jeremiah spoke it, right? Some of you students uh, of the Bible may have recognized that you don't find this passage in Jeremiah. Anybody know where you find it? You find it in Zechariah chapter 11. And so this uh, can cause some people to question, you know, well, what happened? How did this come about? And and there are a couple of of answers to that question. The first, I would say, it's possible that Matthew, uh, just in writing, he didn't have, you know, the Bible handy like we did, and he simply remembered where it was wrong, which to me proves the accuracy of the Bible, because then we have from the time Matthew wrote till now, a a mistake being continually copied accurately. Which just again proves that, hey, things were copied accurately. Now it's also um, possible that it says that 
that the, it was spoken by Jeremiah. So some people say Jeremiah spoke it, but Zechariah simply recorded it. Some people say it was possibly a copious error that Matthew, when he originally wrote it, would have written as it was spoken by Zechariah, but somewhere along the line, a, a scribe kind of mistakenly changed it to Jeremiah for whatever reason or however. We, we just don't know the answer to that question. So um, we'll leave that as it is. But the point of it all is, is that the quote is still accurate. Whether it was spoken by Jeremiah or written in, in Zechariah is really um, irrelevant to the fact that Jesus, this is... Um, in, in, in this money being used to buy the potter's field, is just continuing to um, confirm the scriptural accuracy and direction and prophecy of this whole event that's happening. Good? Yes? Are we good? Even if you're not good, say yes. Good. You'll figure it out later. I promise you. You can go home and hit the books. Verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews. We, we had the focus go from Jesus to Peter, from Peter to Judas. We, we read back in verse, uh, the first two verses of 27. Verse 2 said, When they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. And that's sort of where we pick up now, back from that. Now he's standing before Pontius Pilate, who is, doesn't work for an airline. He's not a P-I-L-O-T. This is his family name. He is Pontius Pilate, the Roman representative there in Judea, where these things are happening. Normally, he would reside in a place called Caesarea. Those that went to Israel last year, we visited Caesarea. But for the feast, for the Passover, he has come to Jerusalem, and he's got a place there that, that he judges from. And he doesn't have a great relationship with the Jews. There's some background that you have to know. I'm not going to go into detail, but he's had... Three really significant bad events that have happened between he and the Jews. One of them involved him taking temple money to build an aqueduct. So he said, hey, I think we, we should do some, some civil improvement. We'll build an aqueduct. Everybody will be happy. Except instead of raising the money, he just took it from the temple. And the Jews, can you imagine that they didn't like that too much? And there was a few other events. Uh, the Bible even records that he had uh, shed the blood uh, of some people and so there's a real tenuous relationship between this man and the Jews. He didn't, Pontius Pilate didn't try to understand them. I don't think he really cared too much about all of their little nuances of idolatry and things. And so he's been in trouble with the, with the Roman emperor a few times. And his position, his role as governor, is hanging in the balances. If there's one more event where they bring this to Caesar, he could lose his job and his power and his money and his place. And so you have to know this is the background behind uh, all of these things. And this is why it seems that the Jews are in control. Because in some ways, politically, they are. Because they've got a Pilate kind of squeezed between a rock and a hard place. So Pilate has to be real careful as he's going through this, this whole process. But now they bring Jesus before him. And now they wouldn't, they wouldn't go in to the... To the to the inner place there where he would have judged from. So Pilate has come out because the Jews couldn't go in because it was a feast and they wouldn't want to uh, be unclean ceremonially. So Pilate comes out. Jesus now, he's been up all night. He hasn't eaten since the Last Supper, since the celebration of the Passover. He's been um, beaten, punched, spit on, blindfolded, and mocked. He's tired. 
He's in pain. And now he sits before this Roman governor. And he asks the question, are you the king of the Jews? Now it's interesting because that's not what they had found him guilty of. That's not what the Jews found him guilty of, was it? They found him guilty of blasphemy. He claims to be the son of God. or the, this, I think that's what they said, the son of God. Look back at, uh, let's see, where are we? Verse, chapter 26, verse 63. But Jesus kept silent. The high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. And of course he says, I am. And that's when they tore their clothes. They said, it's blasphemy. But when they bring him, see, what does Pilate, what does a Roman governor care about blasphemy? He, that doesn't really, he would say to them as he did, like, hey, you guys go figure this out yourself. It's a Jewish thing, you figure it out. But then they, con- they, then they continued to bring more accusations. They, well, he says we shouldn't pay taxes. And he's just a troublemaker. And, and by the way, he said he's the king of the Jews. And oh, that one gets Pilate's attention. Because that could be a challenge to Caesar. I mean, so now they're really accusing him of being an insurrectionist, being one that wants to overthrow the government, uh, bring in a different kind of, of, of uh, power there. Are you, and by the way, he was the king of the Jews. You know that, right? He was part of the kingly line. He descended from David. Matthew dealt with that in the first chapter in his genealogy. He was truly descended from the kings of Israel. And Israel hadn't had a recognized king since, I think, I think the Babylonian captivity. But I'm not positive about that. But as I think, was thinking back through it, they had um, not had a king since back then that has been recognized. But the, the lineage of the kings has still gone on. And here is Jesus, the king of the Jews. He doesn't look like a king, though. He's beaten and bruised and spit on and just brutalized. But Jesus says to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. So again, they're just continuing to to pound accusations at him. And I know, look, today, Jesus is still on trial, isn't he? I mean, that hasn't ended back then. Jesus is still on trial. Sometimes he's on trial in your life. And you can begin, if you go through something hard, and I've watched people go through difficult circumstances and begin, you know, to to accuse Jesus. Why didn't you? Why weren't you? Why couldn't you have Explain yourself. And it's tough, and I know what grief brings those feelings of anger. And here we see again Jesus on trial. Railing with, with, you know, bringing accusations against him. And we've done that. We've been there. Some of you have been there, haven't you? And it's so frustrating when he's silent. Because he's not always silent, is he? And, and he's not silent because he doesn't know what to say. He's not silent because all of a sudden he's, he's afraid he might say the wrong thing or is he, he's afraid he might offend somebody. That's not why he's silent. Because he's not always silent. I would love for him to pull a, like a, an answer to Job right here, you know. Oh yeah, Pilate, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? You know, why don't you explain it? I would love to hear him answer that way right here. Because if I was Jesus, that's what I would do. Absolutely. I am the king of the universe. Where were you when I hung the stars in the sky? Do you know where the hail comes from? Do you know where I store the snow? Do you know why it is that the planets move at such a calculable speed and determinable um, amount of, of direction and way that they move here and there and they're, 
their trajectories, that, that you can measure them and land on the moon because of that? Where were you? But he doesn't. He remains silent. And so we see no complaints, uh, no back talk. The tongue is the, one of the hardest things to get control of, isn't it? And I think we see here just one simple thing about Jesus. He is in complete control. You ever lost control of your tongue? You ever, you ever find yourself being accused of something and you just lose it? And you start saying things and, the, and you're like your, your wife or your husband's are like, Honey, the kids are listening, you know, come on. And you just lose it with the tongue. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness. And, oh, where it was, self-control. And Jesus perfectly, perfectly exemplifying the fruit of the Spirit being self-control. He's completely in control. And he's completely, willingly where he is right now. So he doesn't answer anything. He's completely silent. And then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered him not one word. So that the governor marveled, marveled greatly. I mean, Pilate would have been used to people just defending themselves. People, you know, certainly if you had someone that was condemned to death in front of you, maybe pleading for their lives, maybe breaking down, maybe shivering and, and trying to just beg for mercy. Jesus is a rock. He is the rock, but he is a rock. He is the most incredible person, of course, uh, uh, notwithstanding God in the flesh, that ever lived. He is so amazing to me. And that's what holiness is. Did you know that? That's what holiness is. He is so different. He is so separate from what we are. And in so many ways that we fail, he shines. And, and this is what makes him marvel greatly. So Pilate just looks at this and goes, because he knows the guy's not guilty. Pilate is just trying to get out of having to condemn this guy to death. He's stuck between a rock and a hard place. If he, yeah, and he's just, he sees that he's innocent. He says, I find no fault in him in another gospel. And, then, and, and right about in this area, what Matthew doesn't record, but what's recorded by another gospel writer is Pilate seeing, finding no fault in him tries to get out of this, to weasel out of the situation. He says, well, let's send him to Herod because he found out that Jesus was from Galilee. Says, oh, that's where Herod's in charge. Let's send him there. So he sends Jesus to Herod. Herod also finds no fault in him. Much to Pilate's chagrin, they send him back. And here he is again. Pilate just can't shake the situation. So he's back in front of Pilate again. And that all happens right here between, I believe, between verses 14 and 15. So now, verse 15 says, At the feast, the Passover, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. So this was a custom that they had every Passover to try to foster relationships between the Romans and the Jews. The Romans would release one political prisoner of the Jews. They'd sacrifice a lamb uh, on, on behalf of that prisoner, and then they'd, they'd release him. And so Pilate's just trying to find some way to release Jesus because he knows he's innocent. And so one of the ways he's, he says, well, we're, uh, there's this custom we have. Yeah, yeah, we, we can release a prisoner. So let's do that. Let's try that. So he says, it's customary to release a prisoner. So verse 16 says, and at that time, they had a notorious prisoner 
called Barabbas. By the way, Barabbas' name means, Bar means son of, Abba is father. Some history, uh, church history says that his actual name was Jesus Barabbas, Jesus son of the father. Interesting note. So here we have Barabbas, this son of the father, and, and a father would be a rabbi, you know, obviously. So his father was probably uh, a rabbi and named him Barabbas, having not, not knowing what he would become, this notorious uh, prisoner. He was a murderer, and he had, uh, during a rebellion, had killed some people. And so he was there chained with these other guys that were also political terrorists that, that hated the Romans and were trying to, to take over and, and bring the Jews to power. Uh, he'd been caught. And he was a notorious prisoner. Everybody knew about this guy, Barabbas. He probably made people shake in their shoes. He was so mean. So he says, we've got this prisoner, Barabbas. He says, therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? For he knew they had handed him over because of, circle it, envy. So the first thing, now Pilate is hopeful that he said, okay, I'm going to give you guys a choice. You can have Barabbas or you can have Jesus. And he's hoping they say, release Jesus. But he's just, it's like quicksand for this guy. He just, the more he tries, the deeper he gets. But he's not a psychologist. Yet he makes a tremendous insight. The reason they handed him over wasn't because of spiritual reasons. Wasn't because of their ceremonial law. It wasn't because of anger. It was because of envy. And so often in our lives, we've got to get down to the root. And I love it, Pilate, uneducated in psychology, didn't know who Sigmund Freud was. He, he manages to get down to the root. And he sees in these guys, the issue in their lives is envy. And that's a root. And, and so there's a couple things I want to say about this. First of all, Judas handed him over because of greed. Now, the Jews are handing him over because of envy. And so what we see happening, you, you marked Peter, right? You, let's go to First Peter real quick. Because he's also been lied about. He's being murdered. He's being mocked. There's envy. You marked First Peter. Let me go there myself. I just had you mark chapter 2, so let me get the, the exact verse here. I was telling Walter on the way in this morning that every so often you read, you know, you're reading the Bible and something you've read a thousand times just, it's like the Lord just, the scales fall off. And I saw this personally in a way I had never seen it before because we talk about how Jesus, you know, took our sins on the cross and sometimes, and I have had a tendency to think of that in a spiritual sense. Like, well, you know, that somehow like all the sin of the world was put on him and, and this morning for the first time in my life, I saw it in the literal sense. In the literal sense. That here is Jesus being beaten, being mocked, being lied about, being envied. All of the things that... All, we can't look at these folks and say, well, somehow these Jews are different than us. Have you ever envied somebody? Probably. You ever been jealous? Have you ever lied? I mean, all of these things that he... Have you ever been angry at someone in your heart well, you've murdered? And, and so... It's, I just couldn't, I couldn't help but think of that, that game, that video game Pac-Man. 
Remember Pac-Man? We, used to, we lived in a day when we had to put quarters in the machine to play Pac-Man. And you'd run out of quarters. You'd have to go, Mom, can I have another quarter? You know, just keep putting. And the Pac-Man would go around and eat all the dots and those, those ghosts. Remember the ghosts and you tried to eat them while they were blinking? And I played a lot. Of, I played too many video games growing up. Um, and I just kept thinking of Jesus like, like this Pac-Man, just eating up the sins. That they're all being, being laid on him. He's taking them all on himself and just... And so this is what, what is said here, verse 21 of chapter 2. For to this you were called. So Jesus is still even as, here as an example. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example. That you should follow in his steps, who committed no sin. Judas said he was innocent. Pilate said he was innocent. Herod said he was innocent. He committed no sin. Nor was deceit found in his mouth. Who when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When, he, when people were speaking evil of him, he didn't speak evil in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. But he committed himself to him who judges righteously. That's God. Now listen, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. That we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. So what is happening during this is every ugly... I mean, here is God creates man in his own image. And then an attempt that people like you and I could know him for who he is, not be scared of him because he's intimidating and he's big and when he speaks it's like thunder. And we, we cower in his presence. He, he wanted us to be able to know him in his gentleness and his mercy, and his compassion. And so he puts all of himself into human flesh and comes to the people he created. And the people he created pour out every ungodly, unholy, unthinkable human sin on him. And he takes it. And he takes it and he bears it silently and he takes it to the cross and he takes it to the grave. So there's no sin that you can commit that you can say somehow that's beyond the reach of God. If you have murdered, if you have lied, if you have lived just an ungodly life, what we are seeing is, is Jesus is saying, I can take it. I can take it. And I will take it. And we're not going to talk about it. It's taken. I'm going to put it to death so that you can be healed. He bore all that, and he's bearing it right now in his broken, his bruised, and we're going to get to that. So let's go back to Matthew. Now let's just talk for a second. We were there in verse 18. For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. And so we just have to talk about that for a second here. Just envy in general. A lot of people have a hard time defining envy. What's the difference between envy and jealousy? Envy is when you see someone doing well, when you see someone that's uh, being approved, when you see someone that's prospering, when you see someone that other people like, and it makes you mad. And you just don't want to see them do well. You just, there's something inside you goes, man, they don't deserve that. And it just makes you bitter inside when you see someone else succeeding. That's envy. Now the difference is, and, and envy is, I don't want to see them succeed. Jealousy is, I want to succeed like them. I want what they have. Envy is, I don't want them to have what they have. Do you see the difference? It's, it's a little nuance of difference, but 
But again, the question is, just in our lives, we come back to envy as a, as a nasty little worm, isn't it? Envy is a nasty little worm. There are just two things real quick. If you find yourself envying, and we do, let's be honest, sometimes there's this proud, selfish little part of us that just hates to see other people do better than us. Or maybe I'm, am I alone in that? I mean, am I alone? Would we not struggle with that? But here's the thing in my life as God has been healing me over the years. Number one, contentment. Number one, contentment. Just you know, looking in the mirror and go, God, I am what you made me for the purposes you made me for. And I don't have to compare myself to other people and try to feel like somehow they're doing better than me. I just want to do all I can control is how I am submitted to you and being used by you. And if that's to, to do what, whatever it is you want, Lord, I'm, just, I'm yours. So just to contentment with that, just to learn to be content. When you look in the mirror, when, when, you, when you consider your life, just to be content rather than comparing yourself and being upset with what other people are doing. But the second thing, and I see this in families, when, when there's a family and one person gets saved and begins to do better than the others, rather than the, uh, the others, rather than kind of getting on board and saying, wow, you got saved and this is what has changed your life. Well, I want to get saved too. Because if this is, the, this is what Jesus produces in your life, then I want that. But no, that's too easy. It would be much better that they would say to then sit home and criticize you for getting healed and try to pull you back down into the sickness that you were part of for so long. And so envy can cause that rather than you know, being excited for you doing better, being mad because now you're doing better and, and they're not. And so let them envy. Amen? Let them envy as Christ continues to heal our lives. And I'll say to you in here that, that know someone, you've seen what Christ has done in their lives, you can have it too. You can, Christ is available. He died once for all. He died for you. So you don't have to look on at other people that look like they have joy and be mad at them because they're, joy and, uh, they're joyous and you're miserable. You can be joyous too. If, 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 if you submit your life to Christ. If not, enjoy your misery. But for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. So, envy. Same reason Joseph in the Old Testament was was handed over. Verse 19, while he was sitting then, Pilate on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him. Now better be careful, Pilate, when your wife is sending to you. You better listen. Saying, have nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. So Pilate gets another warning. His wife sends word that she had a dream and that, that she suffered. It was a tough dream, a difficult dream, and she suffered a lot of things. We don't know what the dream was, but she said it wasn't good. And you better be careful of this guy. You better not have anything to do with him. So another nail in Pilate's coffin, so to speak. Verse 20, But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? And I'm thinking, Please say Jesus. Please say Jesus. And they said, Barabbas. So Pilate said to them, what then shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? I just want to say, Pilate, make a decision for yourself, would you? I mean, just do the right thing. History says Pilate also committed suicide, by the way. Um, that's, we don't have any 
um, anything but historical accounts, nothing biblically for that, but historical accounts say that Pilate ended up losing his position and in a, in a few years ended up uh, committing suicide himself. That's another story. But right here, he is stuck. He, he is trying to be politically correct. He's got already bad blood between him and the Jews. They are in control because of that. He does not want them to go back to Caesar and complain about him. So he says, what should I do? With Jesus, who is called Christ. See, not Jesus, who is Barabbas. Jesus, who is called Christ. They, also, they all said to him, let him be crucified. Those are stinging words when they are uttered by your creation. Those are stinging words. Then the governor said, and, and this I ask in this day and age the same question. Why? What evil has he done? And don't you ask that question as we look at our world and the world's reaction to the name of Jesus and how the name of Jesus just brings such, you know, now I understand the church has a sordid history, okay? I understand that. I understand that sometimes Christians don't represent Christ properly. I understand that the church has had some ugly days. But what evil has Jesus done? Why is it that we can bring all kinds of stuff in the schools, you can watch all kinds of movies in school. But we can't say Jesus. And we can't celebrate Christmas. And I just have to ask, as I think about this, I, I look at our world, and I say to our world, what evil has he done? What's he guilty of? He's loved people. He's reached out to the marginalized, to the, to the fringe people. He's reached out to those that are forgotten. He's shown us how to love. He's shown us compassion. He's taught us how to love our neighbor as ourself. What's the evil in that? Why is it that the world, if there's not a spiritual battle going on, why is it that the name of Jesus elicits such a nasty response from so many people? And I say with Pilate, why? What evil has he done? Have you ever asked that question? I mean, what? Really? And, and for, if you're here and you're not saved, you don't know Christ is your Savior and you've been, he's been on trial in your life, I will say to you, why? Why afraid to identify it with him? Why afraid to accept him? Why afraid to worship him? What evil has he done? Couldn't we do much worse? Don't we do much worse than worshiping Jesus? I mean to tell you, let him be crucified. Wow. So they all cried out the more. So rather than answering what evil has he done, they don't answer the question. They just build up the emotion. What Evil as he done, they cried out all the more saying, let him be crucified. Let him be crucified. And they are just stirring the crowd into a mass of, of rage and of judgment on God and on Jesus. And they are not reasonable. You ever try to reason with someone that's not reasonable? So Pilate here, he's trying to reason with them. Well, what has he done? You know, it doesn't matter what he's done. They've, are, the crowd has made the decision. And notice it wasn't the multitudes were persuaded. And multitudes can be persuaded, can't they? And again, I see, I read the literature. I grew up in a school, and just like all of your kids and my kids, and, and evolution was the thing. And, and so easily, a small core can persuade the multitude, and the multitude doesn't usually think. The multitude just responds with the crowd. Don't be a multitude. 
think, please, Christian, before you jump on the bandwagon, before you start yelling, crucify him, crucify him, do your homework. Research it out. Reason about it. Think about it. Because here, it's just, you know, how many times have, have, have we crucified Christ because the crowd was yelling it instead of standing up and, and, and for him? So when Pilate, verse 24, saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, that's bad news for Pilate. I mean, if a tumult rises in Jerusalem, Caesar's going to be there, he's going to lose his job, so he is, his job is more important than doing what's right. Let me say that again. His job, his popularity right now is more popular, or is more important to him than doing what's right. That's a bad place to be. Pleasing people. It's a bad place to meet. So he saw that the tumult was rising. He took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. This is your responsibility. Same thing they had said to Judas. Now he's saying it to them, but he's not innocent. Just because you say you're innocent doesn't mean you are. He is part and parcel of this whole thing. He is the only one that can condemn him to crucifixion. The Jews can't do that. And all the people answered, this is tremendous, and said, his blood be on us and on our children. Let me read one quick thing to you. Are you guys still with me? I know we're getting close to the end here. Um, Are you still, can you hang in there for a few more minutes? When Peter is preaching in Acts chapter 3, his speech there after the, the man at the gate beautiful is healed and everybody sees him running around and, and everybody's looking at Peter and John and going, oh, you guys are awesome. He's saying, don't look at us. It wasn't us. He says, it was Jesus whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. That's Peter's assessment. Peter's assessment of it is Pilate was determined to let him go. But you denied him. And you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Who was the murderer? Barabbas. See, Peter's just recounting. This is not much time after the crucifixion. You, uh, you denied the Holy One and the just and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you and you killed the Prince of Life. Think about that. You killed the Prince of Life. And that's what's happening here. They said, let his blood be on us and on our children. And then he, so then Pilate does it. He listens to them. He gives in. He caves. He condemns an innocent man to death. Justice, right? Jesus didn't get any justice. Not here. Then he released Barabbas to them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And that's where we'll stop for today. Um, we'll start to look at the crucifixion, the, the road to the cross next week. But before you check out on me, I want to just remind you about scourging. Because we read that in Peter, by his stripes, we have been healed. All of our sin. The, the bitterness of a, of a lictor who was the Roman guy that would have been in charge. So what they would do for scourging, and please, I hope that by sort of coming to an end, you haven't checked out completely yet. Are you Just do me a favor to make sure you're still with me. Just nod your head. Yes, pastor, we're still with you. Because this is tremendous. Because 
I mean, the, the, the scourging, because the Bible just says he was scourged. And that is like one word for this tremendous scene where Jesus would have been led already having been up all night, uh, no food, no water, having already been brutalized to some degree. He's now taken and he's chained to a large stump of a tree that's buried in the ground. And he's chained, chained there. I don't think the passion did it right. Usually they're chained a little higher because they have to be able to get to the back of the legs. Because then the lictern was the Roman guard or one or two of them who would have taken up a stance behind the prisoner who would have been uh, facing this stump face first, back exposed, stripped of all the clothes, stripped naked, and hung there with hands outstretched. And the two Roman lictors, by the way, this was always the, the precursor to crucifixion, this, um, this scourging or flogging. And the two one or two, usually there were two Roman guards because one would get too tired from working so hard at scourging the prisoner. And they would take the whip, which was a leather whip with braided leather pieces. Uh, and at the end of those, each leather piece, there were attached pieces of, of bone, metal pellets to give it some weight, and possibly pieces of glass. And so this was what was in the end of, of this leather whip. And so every time... The lictor, and that's where you've heard the word, that guy's taking his licks. That's where it comes from, the Latin. Uh, so, and every time they would, they would lash out with a scourge, it would tear the flesh away from the back. Uh, all the way till it, uh, after 30, 31, 32 licks, it would start to tear down into the, to the uh, below the level of skin, into the uh, actual organs would be exposed, could be exposed, the muscular layer torn through. Um, and the reason I say this, the reason I make this so graphic, as the, the, the lictern's arm is getting tired from inflicting the punishment, is because we in our generation take sin so lightly. We take sin so lightly, and what we are seeing is the cost of sin. This is the sin. That lictern had a bad day at home last night, or was separated from his wife, whatever, and now he's taking all that anger out on Jesus. Boom. Boom. And Judas and his greed and the, the Jews and their envy and me and, and my anger and you and your whatever it is all being laid on Jesus so that we can be healed. So that you can be healed. So as we, as we close out the service, and I know it's been heavy and it's going to get heavier, but you've got to know, you've got to know what God did for you so that you could be whole. So as Phil comes up and the praise team comes up, here's what I want to ask. Here's what I want to ask. If there's anybody in here, you know, you can, you, you can choose not to worship Jesus, but you can't deny the history of what he did. You can't deny the reality of his existence, of his crucifixion, of his scourging of this event. And again, I just want to offer you what God offers you. And that is healing. If there was one person that could have been righteous enough, perfect, then Jesus would not have had to go through this. But we have all sinned. And there are none of us that can say that we were not partaking and participating our sin being put on Christ. Every one of us. Now we know the rest of the story, right? He rises from the dead, having conquered sin in the flesh having condemned it. But I just fear 
that still even sitting here this morning, there are those skeptics that Jesus is still on trial. And I hope that maybe the word of God today has changed your mind. And as you read what Peter said, offers you very personally, by his stripes, you can be healed. All of your sin, forgiven. All of it taken by Jesus, judged before God, carried to the grave, so that you can have newness of life, a new beginning. And that miracle is worked out in in a life every time a person chooses to worship God and walk away from their sinful um, life apart from God. So Phil's going to lead us in a, in a closing song. Uh, let's stand. And as we're standing, if, if, there, if your heart is pounding out of your chest and you just know that, that you need to be healed and you don't understand how this all works, then I want to invite you just to be bold and maybe grab the person next to you, just walk down the aisle here and say, I want to be healed. I want to be healed. There's no shame in that, is there, church? If someone's in here and they were, were to come down, would you laugh at them, church? Would you think it was silly? Or would you praise the Lord for it? So you heard it, folks. If that's you and you're here and the church is going to give thanks because we've all been there. We've all made the walk. We've all made the decision to follow Christ and to be healed. So if that's you, just come on down and let me know.